Welcome to the New Books Network. For a number of different reasons, human fertility rates are declining. And if the issue is not addressed, it could threaten human domination of the planet. It's a big claim, and it's made by Professor John Aitken, who's just written The Infertility Trap, Why Life Choices Impact Your Infertility and Why We Must Act Now. It's published by Cambridge University Press. So, Professor, as I say, a bold claim. Can can we just talk through it? Can can you... Describe, first of all, the fall in fertility rates. Yes, well, um, overall, birth rates as a measure of fertility have uh, declined globally since the 1970s. And um, we haven't noticed that in developed countries because we've been balancing our populations using two basic basic methods. One, um, we have been uh, allowing immigration of people into our countries, and that bolsters um, population numbers. And... uh, also, we, uh, as a species, we are living longer. So uh, the fact that the birth rates have been falling hasn't been re- actually reflected in population numbers yet. But the thesis in the book is that it soon will be. So birth rates are going down. How significantly? Uh, very significantly. If you look at countries like uh, China, uh, China now has a total fertility rate, which is the number of children that each woman will give birth to, a total fertility rate of just over one. I think this year, the number of deaths and the number of births in China more or less balanced each other. And it's now projected that the Chinese population will sink by about a million a year from this point onwards. Isn't China a bit of a one-off, though, because of the you know, government policy on how many children you can have? Yeah, that, that's true. And it, it introduces a, a, an interesting aspect of population dynamics, and that is population momentum. So when populations grow and you have high birth rates, um, that creates momentum in the population because 20 years later, those uh, female um, children are going to become adults and enter the reproductive population. So if you like, you're building some buffering capacity into your population because uh, the young people, the people you're giving birth to are going to be uh, the mothers of the future. Uh, China kind of um, uh, reduced the amount of momentum that their population has by having the one child uh, policy for many years. And uh, the result of that is that um, when their birth rates fall, as they are now doing, and they're no longer buffered by um, longevity, then the the total population will start to decline. And that's exactly what is now happening. And just to sort of hit that point home, the Chinese are sufficiently concerned about this that they've changed the policy. I think people are aware it's gone from one child to two child. I I read in your book, which I wasn't aware of, it's gone to three children. Yes, there's a three-child policy now. Uh, Unfortunately, the the drivers behind um, uh, reduced total fertility rate Uh, don't really respond to political edicts in any sort of um, uh, sensitive way. So uh, I I think no matter how many policies like this they introduce, it's going to be very difficult now for them to stop population decline. And if you like, uh, China is a kind of forerunner of what's going to happen in many countries. Um, The global population will probably peak around in about um, 20 years' time. And thereafter, the global population will start to decline. China's a bit of a one-off. I think most people think that there are declining birth rates in highly developed economies and societies, but you're saying it is broader than that. 
Oh, well, it is broader than that. Uh, these are not my numbers. These are publicly available numbers that you can uh, find from um, bodies like the United Nations. If you just look at um, total fertility rate across the globe, it's now um, falling in all countries and uh, falling below the replacement level of 2.1 in a large number of countries. Can you give us some examples outside of Western Europe and the States, for example? Well, so um, look at any of the tiger economies of Southeast Asia. Uh, look at Taiwan, Japan, Korea, South Korea. All of these countries now have um, the, amongst the lowest fertility rates in the world. Um, they're buffered again by longevity. Their populations are living longer. But that can only last just so long. And after a while, the, their, their total population numbers will start to decline. If you look at countries in Eastern Europe... Uh, like, uh, take an example, Bulgaria. Um, so they have a sort of perfect storm at the moment. Their fertility rates are falling. Uh, the young people in uh, many of those Eastern European countries are leaving, seeking more prosperous countries to live in. So there's uh, quite a significant uh, um, emigration from those countries. And uh, lifespan is not that long in those Eastern Bloc countries. So uh, um, it's going to affect them. Um, in Australia, we've been below the replacement level uh, since the 1970s. And our population has only maintained itself and, and grown, actually, through immigration. Exactly the same is true of the United Kingdom and the same is true of the United States. All of these countries are heavily dependent on immigration to, uh, if you like, uh, camouflage the fact that their basic uh, fertility rates are falling. I don't know if you've researched this, but has this ever happened before? Uh, not at this scale, no, no, no. Populations, uh, the human population, uh, was nicely balanced and going along until, I guess, um, the Industrial Revolution saw a massive increase in population numbers. And uh, once we had really uh, understood the value of primary health care and we'd learned how to unleash the energy locked up in fossil fuels, there was really no stopping us from that point, And the world's population has grown dramatically since. Um, of course, you can look at animal populations and see this uh, kind of situation played out. And there are, uh, the rise and fall of animal populations is a, a very well-studied area. But in our own species, um, we've had unprecedented population growth, and it will be now succeeded by an unprecedented rate of population decline. And your point is we're on the cusp of it, and that the effect is somewhat hidden by factors you just briefly mentioned at the beginning, but let's run through them. The reasons that the declining birth rate doesn't seem as alarming as you believe it is, is first of all, because people are living longer, and that affects the numbers. That's absolutely right. So um, we're buffered by the fact that uh, nowadays people can expect to live well into their 80s and even beyond in many developed countries. So that, and, and particularly in Southeast Asia. So countries like Japan, South Korea have very long-lived populations. And that certainly masks some of the effect of decreased uh, birth rate, total fertility rate. Another masking effect is declining infant mortality. Yes, as we become um, more affluent, <clears throat> infant mortality rates decline. And uh, as infant mortality rates decline, uh, there is no need to have large families anymore. Uh, the, uh, you know, in, um, 
in, in Paleolithic times, the average family size would have been about uh, five or six uh, children, but only one or two are going to survive and uh, contribute to the next generation. Um, but now we can more or less guarantee in mo- modern industrial society that infant mortality rates are vanishingly low. So some of the impetus to have large families disappears. You've run through some of the countries that are affected by fertility decline. Which country or which part of the world is least affected? Well, the least affected would be Africa. And that's simply because they are on a different place in the, uh, if you like, the, um, the ascent of affluence. So the demographic transition hasn't really worked its way through Africa yet. And many people look at Africa as being an example of how things used to be with uh, very high fertility rates and um, uh, high rates of infant mortality. But that actually, and I show the numbers in, in, the, in the book, that's not actually true anymore since the 1970s, 80s uh, population or total fertility rate in Africa has also been declining. So whatever it is that's affecting our population and reducing our total fertility is also having an impact on African countries, even though their um, total fertility rate is much higher than ours, the trend is the same. And where does India stand in all this? So India is very much like China. Um, Their uh, population uh, total fertility rate has declined dramatically in recent years. And uh, they're only now hovering just above replacement level. Um, The interesting thing about India is that uh, the rates of population growth are very different in different regions of India. So there are some areas which are affluent, uh, where we see uh, population numbers or at least uh, fertility rates declining. And there are some other areas of India which are still very poor, where total fertility rates are still high because infant mortality rates are still high. When we look at the unravelling of this, we've got the factors you mentioned, living longer, infant mortality, and they're going to unwind because people are not going to live much longer and infant mortality rates won't keep improving. And then can you just talk us through the last one, population momentum? You mentioned it earlier, but why will that unravel and how does that work? So uh, when populations are increasing in number, um, they're characterised by high birth rates, obviously. And uh, it kind of creates a buffer in your population because the children being born now, the, the young girls being born now, will enter reproductive age in 20 years' time. So there is a kind of lag period between the um, reduction in birth rates and the reduction in the fertility of your population. So that's called positive population momentum. Uh, so young, young girls continue to enter the reproductive uh, cohort um, 20 years after they're born. But the reverse is also true. So when population uh, birth rates are falling, uh, then you have fewer young girls maturing into the reproductive years. And so the decline in populations is more rapid than you might imagine um, because of negative population momentum. What are the predictions of world population over the next, you know, over the course of the next, to the end of this century, let's say? Yes, well, it depends who you ask. And um, uh, predictions are always very difficult in this space because population numbers are determined by so many different factors. Uh, The general consensus is that the world's population will peak at 11 billion by 2040, 2050 maybe. 
and uh, then will start a decline. And uh, what nobody really knows, and, and the, really the point of the book, is that uh, that decline is inevitable now. Uh, so, um, but the rate of decline is very important. It's something which has to be managed. Otherwise, there will be implications for um, both social implications, economic implications, and all kinds of other things will happen if we just don't uh, manage that population decline and become aware of it in our, in our, in our modeling. The UN population predictions tend to be very conservative. And they tend to assume that uh, populations decline and then stabilize at a level which is just below replacement level, which is very comforting. But there's no evidence that that is, in fact, the case. And uh, from what we see from countries like India and China, once that birth total fertility rate starts to decline, uh, there is no floor. It just keeps on going down until you now have these extremely low total fertility rates in uh, places like China and Taiwan, which are around about one. I can hear lots of people thinking, as it were, this will be a very good thing. So we'll get onto that before the end of this uh, podcast. But before we address why does this matter? And what are the implications? Can we just understand why this is happening? So there are a number of factors you believe that are driving fertility rates down. Let me ask you to start with the social factors. What are they? So the social factors, whether it's largely to do with um, education and motivation. One of the things that happens when societies become more affluent is that uh, women in those societies become uh, educated and uh, they want to take their rightful place in the workforce and they tend then to prioritise their professional life. As, as a result of this, socially, procreation is no longer seen as the sole purpose of existence. Um, life is seen more as a uh, sort of uh, realization of your pen- potential, uh, a journey to self-fulfillment rather than uh, having to uh, procreate. So um, that's one of the things that happens, that simply the desire to have uh, children um, gradually gets lost in uh, advanced affluent societies. One of the other things which, uh, um, you know, I I look at this whole situation from a reproductive biologist point of view, and uh, one of the aspects of this which I think is critical is to understand that uh, as a species, the one thing we cannot do is um, ignore our biology. Um, One of the uh, interesting biological facts, but it's a kind of inconvenient truth, is that we are one of the few species on Earth that stops reproducing in midlife. Most most, uh, species will reproduce until the day they die, uh, but not us. We stop reproducing in midlife. And um, one of the problems that we face in modern affluent society is that by the time women have uh, engaged their professional uh, careers and now want to start having a family, they are now entering the years when there is a natural decline of fertility, and uh, which happens between the ages of 35 to roughly 41, 42. And, um, you know, it's, it's not uh, for, for nothing that the uh, IVF clinics throughout the world uh, have uh, women in them with an average age of about 36, 37 so that, you know that's a that's a major biological factor, and we just have to uh, wake up to our biology, and uh, um, basically um, think of ways in which we can modify society to accommodate our biology, not expect our biology to uh, bend to uh, our social will. 
that isn't going to happen. So we, we need to, uh, to think about the intersection between our biological makeup and our uh, social aspirations. You mentioned IVF, and I was very surprised to read in your book that it could account for 10% of, is that the population in some countries or the global population? No, it's uh, in some countries. So in, particularly in Scandinavia, where um, IVF is very expensive, but uh, these uh, Scandinavian countries really lead the world in having uh, funded infertility services that are funded by the state. So in countries like Denmark, there's a very high uptake of assisted conception services because uh, that is provided by the government. It's not something you have to uh, pay for yourself. And uh, the result of that is that uh, in Denmark, roughly 10% of the population is generated by assisted conception. And um, the, the trend all over the world is exponentially upwards. So we're going to see more and more children produced by assisted conception as we go forward. Uh, one of the points I really try to make in the book is uh, our, our lack of awareness about uh, reproductive biology. And uh, it would be important to get some understanding of the fact that IVF can solve many different reproductive problems. But the one thing it cannot solve is infertility due to advanced maternal age. So as women age, they suffer uh, a loss of fertility, which cannot be rescued by the IVF industry. You're making another point about IVF, which is it has implications for human evolution, as it were. Yeah, I think we should get on to that a bit later, because that's part of the long-term um, consequences of the changes that I allude to. Um, you were asking me now about, you know, what are the short-term drivers? So uh, certainly uh, affluence is one of them, and a desire not to have children is another. Along with that, we see uh, certainly in modern affluent societies uh, a reduction in the number of people who are getting married. And, um, you know, to some extent that accounts for, uh, is a reflection of the fact that uh, childlessness is no longer seen as a, uh, as a problem. In fact, uh, for many young women, uh, being childless is an aspiration. It's not something that they, uh, they don't particularly want to have children. Yeah, I noticed you mentioned same-sex marriages as a possible factor, but are the numbers of any significance in that? No, they're not. No, no. Certainly, uh, uh, in terms of overall numbers, that's not really an issue. Um, IVF uh, can help, or at least assisted conception can help uh, same-sex couples have uh, children, but the demographic impact of that is, uh, is minimal. So what about environmental factors? You mentioned them. Yes. So I think that's another important area. Uh, and this applies particularly to the male. So if you like, the, the, the major social problems uh, affect female reproduction and the impact of age largely affects female reproduction. But in males, we're also seeing changes in um, reproductive um, competence, if, if you like, um, which is largely environmentally driven. And all over the world now, we are seeing a decline in sperm counts. Uh, sperm counts have roughly halved in the last 50 years. And it's happening so fast that it cannot be genetic. It has to be something which is environmental, which is inducing this change in uh, sperm production. And although um, we have to be careful, the reduction in sperm numbers does not necessarily equate with a loss of fertility. If the current trends continue, uh, then it will have a in the end, an impact on our total fertility. 
So uh, I think environmental factors certainly major, have a major impact on male reproduction through mechanisms that we are um, only just beginning to understand. Well, in, in as much as we do understand them, can you spell them out? What is causing the fall in sperm count? I mean, the truth is we don't know. In the book, I put forward a hypothesis, which is that um, uh, essentially modern environments, um, advanced affluent environments, um, are associated with uh, high levels of uh, estrogen uh, activity. So um, many of the industrial pollutants that uh, 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 contaminate our environment uh, have uh, estrogen-like activity. Um, also, we are looking at, um, uh, in a worldwide pandemic, in obesity, and men who are obese have high levels of estrogen in their blood. Um, we uh, experience daily estrogen intake take via dairy products and uh, phytoestrogens. And male aging is also associated with increased uh, estrogen production, uh, as is uh, many lifestyle factors like alcohol intake. And all these things uh, basically suppress testosterone production. So uh, in the book, I make the case that at least a plausible hypothesis is that the global reduction in uh, sperm count is a reflection of a global decrease in testosterone levels. And there is evidence to support that. Uh, I should add, I didn't just make that up. Uh, There is uh, evidence to support that from um, studies from different parts of the world, one of the best studies coming from Israel. Well, it would seem to be one of those uh, areas that would be researchable in that different parts of the world may have different rates of declining sperm count and there'll be different environmental factors. So does that help you understand the issue? You're right. Uh, this is, we, we shouldn't, uh, it's, it's difficult to create one picture out of a, a variety of different uh, countries with different environmental impacts and different uh, population compositions. But what we know currently is that there are studies from the Nordic countries, from the USA and from Israel, all of which have pointed to a lowering of testosterone levels as being the cause of the reduction in sperm counts. Uh, That's only three countries, and I absolutely admit this is just a hypothesis. We need to replicate those studies in other countries to see how applicable this model is to other Uh, environmental situations. But as we look at it currently, um, the undeniable fact is that sperm counts are declining. In some countries, that is definitely associated with decline in testosterone. And as you say, it's a testable hypothesis that that generalizes across all environments and that testosterone reduction is is, is responsible. And the thing that's driving down testosterone is an increase in, if you like, estrogenic attack from many different points, um, many different factors. So your point is that it's, it's, it's male and female fertility rates that are declining? It is. Um, in the short term, it's mostly female. In the midterm, it's going to be uh, involve male and female factors. And in the long term, it definitely involves both male and female factors. So have we now dealt with the short-term factors for these declines? And can we get on to the longer-term evolutionary issues you think we need to think about? Uh, by all means, yeah. No, I think that's um, one of the issues which is <clears throat> certainly it, I try to make the case in the book that you can't look at these kind of um, 
changes in population numbers in our traditional sort of three to five year cycle. The kind of changes I'm talking about are going to take place over decades, if not centuries. It's just um, that the things that are happening now will have an impact in, say, 40, 50 years time, and we should be aware of them. And one of the things that's happening is that uh, we no longer select for high fertility genes. You know, in uh, environmental, in um, Victorian London, the average family size was 11. You know, why would you have 11 children in Victorian London? Well, because infant mortality rates were very high. And uh, you had to have 11 kids in order to ensure that just one or two survived and would go on and uh, meet a partner and pass your genes on into the next generation. All that disappears as we become more affluent. So you kind of take the selection pressure off of fertility. You no longer have to be highly fertile in order to have children. If you're only capable of having one child by IVF, it doesn't matter. Your genes are now going to be passed on into the next generation. So uh, something we know from looking at domestic animals is if we don't select for something, we lose it. And the examples I give in the book are um, the horse racing industry and uh, dairy cattle. So in both of those, uh, in the case of uh, thoroughbred horse racing, the animals are selected on the basis of athletic prowess. And in the case of uh, dairy cattle, selected on the basis of milk yield. And if you select for those things, you certainly acquire both athletic prowess and milk yield, but something else is the consequence, which is that fertility levels start to fall, and both of those industries suffer from uh, poor fertility. So in our case, it's inevitable that the as the selection pressure on fertility diminishes, so our fundamental fertility will fall. And uh, I make the case that uh, that can be exacerbated, could be exacerbated by the IVF industry if it continues to operate at scale. At the moment, it's not at a scale where it have any impact at all. Uh, but if the exponential rise and the uptake of assisted conception continues, then uh, what uh, IVF tends to do is to ensure that poor fertility genes are transmitted from one ge- generation to the next. So um, it uh, is uh, inevitable uh, that the more that we use IVF in one generation, the more we're going to need it in the next. And that may be good for the IVF industry, but there are implications there, social implications and financial implications, um, uh, implications for health services and governments, uh, which need to be thought about and addressed. Presumably, though, timescales must come into that, because what a, a racehorse lasts, what, 10 years or something? And um, so you'd see a more rapid fall in fertility rates once selected for athletic prowess, whereas in humans with their much longer lifespans, presumably this process is a really slow one. It's, you know, it's very long term. Uh, yes, it, it is very long term. The other point I would make, though, is that we're, we're operating, operating from a very low base. So uh, if you were to look at the fertility of, I don't know, feral wallabies outside my house in Australia or, uh, I don't know, badgers in the UK, uh, most of these wild animals have fertility rates approaching, approaching, approaching 100%. That is to say, every time they mate, um, they, uh, they will produce an offspring. I did my PhD actually on roe deer in Thetford Chase, just outside Cambridge, and um, I hardly ever found a non-pregnant female uh, following the mating season. 
So uh, most animals have fertility rates that fecundity rates that approach 100%. In our species, fecundity is only 25%. So it's one of the lowest fertility rates that uh, we know of. And uh, so we start from a very low base. And if you stop selection for whatever high fertility genes we have, uh, then it's going to fall even further. One of the points you make is that factors for low fertility are self-reinforcing. Does that apply, obviously, to the evolutionary one? I can see that. But on the short-term factors as well, are they self-reinforcing? Uh, in, in a sense, that they are. Um, you know, a lot depends on what uh, people aspire to in life. And uh, when China first introduced the one-child policy, the uh, generation on which it was imposed would have been appalled. But then you, the next generation have experienced the one child. They are the products of the one child family. And for them, the one child family has become the theoretical ideal because it's what they, they came from. So low, small families tend to beget small families. And in that sense, it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. Um, the more... Um, Child, more childlessness, the more acceptable childlessness becomes in society, um, the more childlessness we're likely to see. Uh, that, those are the social factors. Um, and in the case of uh, environmental factors, um, unless we get a handle on what these environmental factors are that are driving down human fertility, they will continue to uh, wreak havoc on our reproduction. In that sense, they, they will be perpetuated, if not reinforced, certainly perpetuated just by our lack of understanding. Now we get on to the big question, if you like, which is, does it matter? Because I, I, I'm sure people are thinking, well, you know, there are too many people on this earth. Resources are stretched. Our impact on the planet is, is very damaging to the planet. Fewer people would be a good thing. And I, I can't uh, disagree with that. You know, um, uh, as we uh, are talking, the, the signs of overpopulation are all around us from uh, uh, cl climate change to pollution. And so a population fall is not a bad thing at all. So in a sense, the system is going to self-correct. Um, but the point I try to make in the book is that when that fall happens, which is a good thing, let's all admit that, it is a good thing, but there will be implications there. There will be implications there for individuals, there will be implications there for governments and for economies. And it's a decline that has to be managed. If we don't realize what these factors are and we get a population crash, that could be very damaging. So uh, the important thing is to try to understand what the drivers of this uh, population decline are likely to be and to exert some level of control over them so that uh, the decline, when it happens, is measured and can be accommodated and does not happen so fast that it causes havoc. Because one of your points is that it, it, the population numbers could fall off a cliff. You know, it may be really very rapid and much more rapid than people realise. That's exactly that. We're, all, we're, we're, I mean, I think in general, demographers understand that the world's population is about to decline from about 2040 onwards. It's going to stabilise and then decline. But uh, every time people talk about the rate of decline, uh, the estimates of how quickly that's going to happen get revised every year, and they get revised downwards. So uh, we now think this decline is going to occur much more rapidly than we did three or four years ago. And um, yeah, I, and I think it's because there are so it's a perfect storm of factors which are creating the decline, and we just need to understand what they are and address them, so that the decline, when it happens, is a manageable event. So let me just ask, 
to put some numbers on it. And I know the predictions are very difficult, so I'm really asking just for mainstream predictions, you know, as best as people can do. Uh, by 2050 and by the end of the century, what sort of numbers and where are we now in terms of global population? Okay, so um, now we're at about 8 billion people. And uh, we expect the population to uh, reach a peak of about 11 billion. Um, and that peak is thought to occur somewhere between uh, 2040 and 2050. And thereafter, there will be a decline. And, um, you know, estimates vary on how quickly that decline is likely to occur. My point is that I think those estimates are constantly being revised downwards, and I think it's going to occur much more rapidly uh, than we had imagined. But by the end of the century, maybe, what, back to eight? Uh, something of that order, I would have thought, yes, yes. But that eight will be different because it'll have many more older people in it. Well, that's one of the other aspects of um, the, the changes in population numbers, is that the population pyramid becomes inverted. If you look at uh, developing countries, um, they're usually characterized by a broad base of young people supporting a narrow crown of uh, people who are aged, that is, more than 65 years old. Um, but as countries become more affluent, we live longer, and the birth rates decline in the way they are, the population pyramid becomes inverted. So you now have a very small number of uh, young people uh, generating the productivity in the economy to keep a much larger population of old people um, uh, in ways to which they've become accustomed. So um, we talk now of super-aged societies where more than 20% of the population is over the age of 65 and being supported by a dwindling workforce of young people who, uh, and that's one of the other factors that could contribute to infertility is that that workforce will not have, not have the, the time or the energy uh, to procreate because they'll be working so hard just to keep the economies going. So is that the only issue that bothers you about a falling off the cliff scenario that this business of having a, a super age society or that are there other things that we need to worry about well, i think from from the point of view of governments and economies economies are inevitably based on the concept of growth and it's always been a problem that we've recognized since the 1960s that you can't have economies that continue to grow on the basis of resources that are finite. And um, many economies have grown because their populations have grown. So that's certainly true in Australia. We've seen dramatic pop, uh, economic growth in recent years. And it's all based on increased in population numbers. If you look at productivity per capita, that's actually gone down. Um, it's not we're becoming more productive, uh, which is there's more of us producing. And if um, population numbers start to decline, and that's you know that, that will happen very rapidly in countries like Australia, where immigration is our major source of uh, of bolstering population numbers. If that stops. Uh, then the population will go backwards very quickly. And with it will go uh, the economy, because the economy cannot is dependent on population numbers. And that will affect all aspects of society. And one of your points is that immigration may well decline because the countries which produce emigrants are also experiencing population decline. Yes, I don't, I think, you know, we've been able to uh, take advantage of people coming 
talented individuals coming from places like India and China. The diaspora from those countries has helped bolster the economy of uh, many developed nations. Um, but they are suffering now their own populations decline, uh, particularly as we've already rehearsed in, in uh, China. So I don't think you'll see very many, chi chi you know, China won't let its population now leave in order to prop up the economies of other countries. They want to keep all the people they've got. And the uh, same is true of uh, India. And ultimately, um, I think the same will be true of Africa, which is also showing its own much later decline in birth rates. If your main concern is uh, economic policy, really, and how to cope with this new demographics that are going to emerge in, in a low fertility world, isn't it possible to rely on technological advance that Malthus you know, got it wrong because technology saved the day, and it will do so again. That's very possible. And so what you could imagine is that a population numbers decline, we just become much more productive, uh, much more efficient in producing things. And so we don't need large numbers of people to maintain our economies. We just have highly automated, very efficient economies. And uh, that's certainly one scenario that would be great to have. Uh, and, uh, you know, if uh, books like mine encourage people to develop those technologies because they're going to be important in the future, then that's, uh, that's a success as far as I'm concerned. It's just a, um, uh, the, the point of the book really is just to make people aware that this is going to happen and that uh, whether it's uh, social adjustments or whether it's technical adjustments that we need to make in order to accommodate it, uh, those are things that we have to start thinking about now because in 20 or 30 years time, it's going to become a reality. Yeah, it is interesting reading your book because the, the assumption generally is that the population is going up and will do forever. And you show quite convincingly that that's not the case. Why do you think people have the wrong perception? It seems very deeply embedded. Well, I think because the signs of overpopulation are just with us all the time. And certainly I grew up in the early era when we were dreadfully worried about overpopulation. And I spent most of my life not studying infertility, as I do now, but actually contraception. We were very worried about uh, uncontrolled population growth. And, uh, you know, it was pointed out in the 1960s that uh, if you have a, a population which is growing faster than the economy uh, per capita, you're just getting poorer and poorer. And so uh, we talked about never to be developed countries because their population rates of population growth outstripped their economies. But that has all now changed. And um, uh, now I think the emphasis is much more on the, the loss of fertility rather than uh, trying to prevent it. But do you think that policymakers should also be trying to reverse the loss in fertility? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I think we, it's, uh, yes, absolutely. So, you know, in the perfect world, every couple would have the number of children that they require, uh, and the desire is the better word. Every, every couple would have the number of children that they desire. And so whether they're suffering from infertility, uh, we would find ways to control that and uh, give back the fertility that they've lost. If they are um, needing contraception, we'll have a safe, effective means of contraception to mean that they can achieve their desired family size. And if we did that, uh, there probably won't be a crisis at all. Uh, but at the moment, the uh, increase in infertility is something that we, we are not definitely not in control of. And the only tool we have in our armament is essentially uh, assisted conception. And, um, you know, we don't often know why people are infertile. We've just defaulted to this one technology as a sort of um, catch-all to try to um, 
solve the infertility problems of a large number of people who are suffering from many different kinds of condition that uh, could be treated maybe more cost effectively with other methods. Um, we've just never invested in the fundamental research to find out why fertility levels are so low. Right. And if you if, if you try to address that, one of the you know, suggestions you make is reducing chemical pollutants in the environment, increasing education in terms of presumably women uh, being more aware of the limits of their biology. Is that the sort of thing? Yes, absolutely. So if we talk about uh, education first, so uh, sex education desperately needs a, a revision. I think when I was growing up, sex education was all about trying to prevent teenage pregnancies. We were given the impression that fertility was a tap that you can turn on and off. And if man comes in, even within close proximity of woman, uh, then it's likely that she will conceive and have a child, so better not do that. And the emphasis was very much on contraception and preventing teenage pregnancies. That's a misconception of what fertility is like. Fertility is, as I said in the book, is much more fragile than that. And uh, it's something that people should be aware of. Otherwise, they're likely to be disappointed. They can't take the pill for 20 years, suddenly stop taking the pill and expect to conceive in the first six months. It will happen for some people, but for a lot of people, it won't happen. And uh, so uh, I think educating people properly about their own fertility is very important. I give public lectures on this kind of topic, um, less so since COVID, but before COVID, I gave a lot. And I was always surprised at how little people understood of their own reproductive biology, both men and women. And how realistic is it to think in terms of reducing the chemical factors that may be leading to lower sperm counts? Well, I think we've got good hypotheses as to what those chemicals are. And certainly, I think Europe and to some extent North America have led the way in uh, controlling the release of some of those uh, chemicals into the environment. Something I call for in the book is a kind of uh, uplifting of reproductive toxicology. Um, you know, many chemicals are released into the environment without uh, any knowledge of whether they would have a potential impact on fertility. And that needs to be part of the assessment criteria before we start releasing uh, drugs or other industrial chemicals into environmental situations. I think control over the uh, level of pollution in the environment is critical for all sorts of reasons, but not least is the impact it can have on our fertility. You must have had experience now of talking about your book, and I'm sure when you were writing it, you were developing these ideas and, and giving lectures and so on. Is your biggest obstacle convincing people that this is happening or convincing people that it matters? I think the first is uh, um, one of the most difficult things because, uh, you know, as I've said before, what we see in our day-to-day -day lives now is the, are the consequences of overpopulation. We are seeing dramatic climate change, which in places like Australia, where we seem to oscillate between devastating floods and forest fires, um, is having a major impact on the day-to-day -day life of people. So uh, when I say, uh, well, in the world's population is set to decline, much as you've indicated, people say, well, that's great. That's good. That's exactly what we want. And, uh, and I agree. Uh, a reduction in population numbers would be a good thing. We just have to manage it uh, so that uh, it doesn't uh, create havoc. So I think, yes, convincing people that uh, there is a change is going to come when all around them is evidence that uh, we have too many people on Earth already. Uh, that's the difficult part. Well, you've very much helped us understand the issue today, so thank you very much indeed. 
Oh, my, my great pleasure, Owen. Thank you very much for asking me.